This morning, we are wrapping up our four-part mini-series on sin, righteousness, and judgment. And here are the key takeaways from what we have been studying. We, as we looked at these topics, we said we need to discern and deal with our own sins through repentance. We repent quickly. We come to the Lord. We come back to Him. We have the fear of the Lord in us. We return to our first love for those that have known Him and have need of that. And for those that have never known Him, we make Him our first love. And we say, Lord God, You are everything for me. But I thank You that my sins are dealt with. We discern and deal with our sins through repentance. Secondly, we need to avoid self righteousness. We don't glory in our own ability to save ourselves or to be good or to do anything. We say, Lord God, it's not up to us. It's up to you. We thank you for that. And we're going to reinforce that point even today, even as we talk about righteousness. But so far, we've been saying we are avoiding self-righteousness, even though we haven't said a whole lot about righteousness itself. And then the third thing, we said we need to be transformed in our thinking about judgment by recognizing that our own words and thoughts bear witness before God in terms of judging us. It's not even about somebody else saying something. It's not about accusation that would come. It's our own words and thoughts that bear witness before the Lord. So we pay attention to our words and our thoughts. We pray for the cleansing of our words and our thoughts as we are conscious of God's righteous judgment. And we said as part of that, we are careful not to be judgmental. We don't judge others. We don't look at others and say, you sinner. We say to them, here's a person who needs God. Let me tell you about this God who is righteous, who is just, who is fair, who loves you and who cares for you. And we point them to Jesus. In Romans chapter 3, Paul is addressing questions that the believers would have raised about what he wrote in Romans 1 and 2 and really in many of the other epistles, and there would have been word that was circulating, and so these believers in Rome would have started to raise some questions. So in Romans chapter 3, Romans chapter 3 is like a transcript of a question and answer session. He sort of raises a question and then he gives an answer, right? So it's like a transcript of a Q&A session. And we're not going to be able to consider all the questions this morning, so I encourage you to study each one of the questions and each one of the responses in detail on your own. And if you have any follow-up questions, we can address them in our weekly sermon discussions or our monthly Q&A sessions or in some other forum. But we'll, you know, we'll grapple with those questions as they come up. So, but with that in mind, with that as the context, let's read Romans chapter 3, Verses 1 through 31. We're reading through the whole chapter. Romans chapter 3. What advantage then is there in being a Jew? Or what value is there in circumcision? Much in every way. First of all, the Jews have been entrusted with the very words of God. What if some were unfaithful? Will their unfaithfulness nullify God's faithfulness? Not at all. Let God be true and every human being a liar, as it is written, so that you may be proved right when you speak and prevail when you judge. That's from Psalm 51 verse 4. But if our unrighteousness brings out God's righteousness more clearly, what shall we say? That God is unjust in bringing his wrath on us? 
And Paul says here, I'm using a human argument. Certainly not. If that were so, how could God judge the world? Someone might argue, if my falsehood enhances God's truthfulness and so increases his glory, why am I still condemned as a sinner? Why not say, as some slanderously claim that we say, let us do evil that good may result. Their condemnation is just. What shall we conclude then? Do we, that is the Jews, do we have any advantage? Not at all. For we have already made the charge that Jews and Gentiles alike are all under the power of sin. As it is written, and now Paul goes into quoting a number of verses from the book of Psalms. And he says, as it is written, there is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands. There is no one who seeks God. All have turned away. They have, become to, they have together become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. That's from Psalm 14, verses 1 through 3, and Psalm 53, verses 1 through 3. Their throats are open graves. Their tongues practice deceit. That's from Psalm 5, verse 9. The poison of vipers is on their lips. That's from Psalm 140, verse 3. Their mouths are full of cursing and bitterness. That's from Psalm 10, verse 7. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Ruin and misery mark their ways. And the way of peace they do not know. That happens to be from Isaiah chapter 59, verses 7 through 8. There is no fear of God before their eyes. That's from Psalm 36, verse 1. Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be silenced and the whole world held accountable to God. Therefore, no one will be declared righteous in God's sight by the works of the law. Rather, through the law, we become conscious of our sin. But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been made known to which the law and the prophets testify. This righteousness is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There is no difference between Jew and Gentile, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And all are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood to be received by faith. He did this to demonstrate his righteousness because in his forbearance he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. He did it to demonstrate his righteousness at the present time so as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. Where then is boasting? It is excluded. Because of what law? The law that requires works? No. Because of the law that requires faith. For we maintain that a person is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. Or is God the God of Jews only? Is he not the God of Gentiles too? Yes, of Gentiles too since there is only one God who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through that same faith. Do we then nullify the law by this faith? Not at all. Rather, 
we uphold the law. I had said that Romans 3 and 4 tell us more about righteousness, the righteousness of God. Before we get into that topic itself, let's look at some of these initial questions and responses in Romans 3 that summarize the points we have been considering in the previous weeks. So here's this question from verse 1. Are you saying there is no advantage or meaning to biblical religion, religious observance, or keeping the law? Answer, no. There is great value in having, knowing, and applying or obeying the word of God. That's in verse 2. Next question. Haven't the promises of God failed since so many did not believe in the gospel of righteousness revealed in Jesus? I mean, Jesus, God himself, came into the earth, walked on the earth, taught the people, and so many did not believe him. So does that, doesn't that mean that the word of God or the promises of God have failed? That's in verse 3. Answer. In spite of the failure to believe by many of those to whom the word of God was entrusted, God gave the word to the Jews, God's promises to save people are being fulfilled and our faithlessness only reveals his faithfulness. How committed to his truth God is. God's truth remains true even if every human being rejects it or opposes it, even if every human being is a liar. Verse 3 and 4. Next question. If unrighteousness makes righteousness visible and apparent, and if my sin makes God's glory more clearly seen, then why should God judge me for my unrighteousness or my sin? That's in verse 5 and in verse 7. Answer. God is the only true and fair judge. He's the only one who can and should judge unrighteousness and sin. That's what verse 6 and 8 are telling us. God is the only one who can deal fairly with the consequences of sin. He's the only one who can deal fairly with the consequences of sin. We speak a lot about what injustice there is in the world around us. And the only place that you can find true justice is in God. If God forgave us by being indifferent to sin, if the only way he could justify his people was to give up his role as judge, if he was not a judge over sin and the consequences of sin, then that would not be loving to those who are the victims of sin or to those that suffer the consequence of sin. Where would they go? Where would they look to for help? How would they receive help, justice, fairness? Only God can help. And so we say, God, you, because of who you are, because of your character and nature, if you were indifferent to sin, then it would not be loving to the victims of sin. It would give us no assurance for the future because we don't know. We are not sure if we will receive a fair treatment. And we would make God or we would compromise the very character of God. We would be making God to be something less than he is. So God is the best judge. God is the right judge. God is the fair judge. And so we say, oh God, we thank you that you are our judge. Now the law or more precisely, 
our inability to keep the law makes us conscious of our sin. That's what verse 20 says. The law makes us conscious of our sin. The law doesn't save us from our sin. Keeping the law doesn't save us from our sin. But when we see the law, when God says, don't do this, and we end up doing it, we become conscious of our sin. We say, oh, I am unable to do this on my own. I am unable to keep this law. So the law makes us conscious of our sin. And our unrighteousness makes it clear that we need the righteousness of God. Which brings us to the one and only main point for this morning. Righteousness is from God through Christ's atonement and received by faith. Righteousness is from God through Christ's atonement and received by faith. Righteousness and unrighteousness are about legal standing before God. So don't get confused about the term. Don't think anything more about it. It's just a matter of saying, what is our legal standing? What is our legal position before God? And righteousness has to do with that. Our sin created a separation between us and a righteous God. And in that sin, we are legally guilty. So we are guilty of sin we are in that position, we are legally in a position of unrighteousness, not right standing before God. And Paul's conclusion, Paul's conclusion in, in this very oft quoted, quoted verse, Romans 3.23, is that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. All have sinned and fallen short of the biblical standards of the law, of what the law makes us conscious of. All have sinned and fallen short of the just requirements of God. All have sinned and fallen short of the righteousness or the right standing before God. This doesn't mean that every person is equally sinful, meaning in the sense that, that the sin that every person has is the same. Some could be more sinful, less sinful, you know, consistently sinful, only sometimes sinful. We could, I mean, sin could be in all sorts of ways in our lives. But it does mean that our legal condition is the same. All of us are lost. We don't, we don't, we don't stand before God and say, I'm okay, he's not, you know, she's not. All of us equally are lost before God, regardless of the level of sin, Right? So we don't measure ourselves, compare ourselves and say, you know, I'm, I'm not as bad a sinner, so I must be okay. We say we're all equally lost before God. There is no degree of lostness. And let me illustrate this concept of lostness this way. Imagine that the past Olympic swimming champion Michael Phelps, the current Olympic champion Caleb Dressel, and I, me, are standing on the beach at the Outer Banks in North Carolina. And if you look out due east-southeast, about 700 miles that, in that direction is Bermuda. Right? And so the three of us, we decide we're going to swim to Bermuda. We're going to 
you know, go have a wonderful vacation in Bermuda. We'll worry about what we need and what clothes we have and all that once we get there. But we're going to swim to Bermuda. Well, we jump into the water and I tell people all the time, if you saw me swimming, you would think I was drowning. So in just about 100 feet, I'm done, right? I'm, I'm, I'm drowned, I'm gone. Now, Michael Phelps, I mean, he is an Olympic champion. And he, I mean, he's making great headway. He's out there 10 miles, 20 miles, I don't know, 30 miles. He's, he's going. But, you know, he's not quite in his prime anymore. And by the time he gets to that mark, you know, he starts to tire. And there's nobody there. There's nothing else. And he starts to sort of not be able to stay up anymore. And maybe he can tread water for a little while. But he's not making progress towards Bermuda. He's, he's just there. And pretty soon, he drowns too. Now, Caleb Dressel, he just won five gold medals. Right? He, he's in his prime right now. Oh, he's, he's gone past Michael Phelps. He's gone 60 miles, you know, 70 miles. But he gets out there and he's now tiring too. And he can't do anything else. And he starts to tread water for a little while, but pretty soon he's done. And he drowns. You know, at the end of that period of time, it didn't matter whether Michael Phelps was a better swimmer than me. It didn't matter whether Caleb Dressel was a better swimmer than Michael Phelps. All of us have drowned. We're all equally lost. We had completely different capabilities. We had completely different intentions, desires, training, background. Completely. And we were able to do quite a bit. Achieve quite a bit. Or at least the two of them were able to achieve quite a bit more. Right? But at the end of the day, at the end of all of that striving, we're all equally lost. And so Paul says in Romans 3, 23, for all have sinned and come short, fallen short of the glory of God. But even as Romans 3, 23 is telling us that all of us are lost, Verse 21 and 22 tells us that now apart from the law of right, the law, now apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been made known to which the law and the prophets testify. This righteousness is given by God. Righteousness is from God through faith, received by faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. We can't read Romans 3.23 and not read 21 and 22 because He's not saying, oh, we're all just lost, that's the end of it. He's saying, hey, remember we're lost, but remember, remember, I want you to understand that righteousness, apart from the law, has been given to us, and that we can receive this righteousness by faith. By faith in one person only. By faith, or this righteousness having only one focus, one object, Christ Jesus. And he says, it's not our faith that saves us. It is Jesus Christ that saves us. We are simply receiving, accepting, believing what he has done for us by faith. We don't, we don't have video. These days, if it's not on video, if, it's not on, if, it's, if, it's there, if, it's, if there's no photograph, then, oh, it didn't happen. We don't have video of Jesus walking the earth and being on the cross and doing all of this. 
We do have eyewitness accounts that have been recorded for us and given to us and we trust that and we go for it. But ultimately, we are by faith receiving what the Lord Jesus has done for us. And we say, Lord, we believe by faith. We receive what you have done. And what is it that he has done? Romans 3, 24 and 26. So Romans 3, 23 is telling us all have sinned. Romans 21, 22 are saying, hey, this is the righteousness of God. Romans 24 and 20, through 26 tells us, all are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood to be received by faith. Again, another truth that we are to receive by faith. He did this to demonstrate his righteousness because in his forbearance, in his patience, he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. He did this to demonstrate his righteousness at the present time so as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. What did Jesus do? How is the justice of God administered? How is God just and fair to us? Especially when we have no means of accounting for our own sin. We can't pay the price. We can't do anything else. God does not set his justice aside. He doesn't say, okay, I'm, I'm, I'm just not going to be just. I'm not going to mete out justice because, you know, these human beings, they can't do anything. They can't account for their sin. So I'm not going to be just. No, what he does instead is that he turns the justice onto himself. He takes our place for us. He takes what is due to us, he takes it upon himself. And so God turns that justice and the wrath and the punishment and all of that that is required for the sin, he turns it upon himself at the cross. The cross does not rep represent a compromise. It's not something less. It's not just halfway something. The cross satisfies both God's wrath and justice and God's love. That's the power of the cross. It's not just, oh, okay, the cross, and so my sin is accounted for, my, my punishment is accounted for. But also that on the cross, God's love is extended and his provision is made. It's not one or the other, it's both coming together. The cross is a demonstration both of God's justice and of his justifying love. His justice and his justifying love love. So the truth of what Jesus did and what it implies for our righteousness is crucial for us to understand. We have to be very clear about this because if we don't get this concept of righteousness, of this, of what Jesus did, don't worry about whether you can define it precisely, whether you can describe it you know, accurately. That's not the point. The point that I want to make to you is this, that you would be very clear that what Jesus did on the cross on my behalf, what he has done to shed his blood and to give his life, has allowed me to be in right legal standing with God. And that's the message that we speak to somebody else. Sin has separated us from God. What Jesus has done can restore you to God. It's a simple message. There's nothing complicated. We don't do penance. We don't go on pilgrimage. 
We don't do sacrifices of our own. We don't give of our resources. We simply receive by faith what Jesus has done. Now, the reason that this is so crucial for us to understand is because we have a tendency, as we've looked at, even when we're talking about self-righteousness, we have a tendency to think that it's our good works that are keeping us in legal standing, in good legal standing with God. I, I, I was observing the speed limit. That's why I have not gotten a ticket. Right? I have done these things well. That's why I have good legal standing before God. I have been good. I have said these things. I'm mindful of my words. I'm doing all this. Therefore, no one has anything to accuse me of. We think it's our good works. And I'm, again, by the way, I'm not saying don't drive at the speed limit and you know, don't be mindful of your words. I'm saying, yes, absolutely, do all that stuff. Right? Be observant of the laws. Be subject to the laws. Maintain all the laws that the Lord has given to us. But it's not because of that that we have earned our salvation. It's not because of that that we keep our salvation. You see, if we think that our good works are the cause of our salvation, we will become self-righteous and remain lost. We'll just be drowned. We're out there. If we reject the whole idea of the cross and Jesus as our sin-bearing substitute, if we think our worthiness and acceptability hang on our performance, then when our sin is revealed, it drives us away from God instead of that revelation of sin driving us to run to him, to repent, to seek forgiveness, to be restored in relationship and to feel closer to him. Because why? You feel guilty. You feel bad. You say, oh, I can't, I can't do this. This Christian life is too hard. Because when the sin is revealed, you're saying, oh, I, you know, I, I, I was doing really well, but I've messed up. Now God's going to reject me. Or there's no place for me. Or, you know, I'm just going to be condemned. Oh, it's too tough. You do, do you understand? If you rely on yourself, if you think it's up to you, when sin is revealed, you will give up. But if you know that it's all on God, you say when sin is revealed, you run to him and you say, oh God, I, I just discovered a new sin. I just discovered a new thing. Please help me. Please forgive me. Please cleanse me. Right? Or somebody else has just discovered a new sin in me. Right? Please help me. Please, you know, cleanse me. But you, when sin is revealed, you run to God. And so, if we think that we are the reason for our salvation, then we fool ourselves. But we also have to keep in mind that in terms of what Paul is writing here, if we think that our faith, our, our belief, is the cause of our salvation, we will stop looking at Jesus, we will stop looking at Christ, and stop looking at our faith. And we will say, oh, it's because I believe that I'm saved. It's a subtle point here, but be careful. Clearly, we have to express faith, to exercise faith. But it's not because of our faith that we are saved. It's because of what Jesus has done. Because if we think that it's because of our faith that we are saved, then when we have doubts, when there's a question that comes up, when something challenges us, when someone raises an objection, what will happen? Our faith is shaken. We're like, ah, I don't know. Why? Because we think it's up to our faith. So now we're like, oh, we have to defend our faith. We have to be defenders of our faith. We think it's up to us. And then, 
when we don't feel the Lord, when we don't feel the Holy Spirit, when we're not quite so clearly you know, experiencing His goodness and grace, we're, we're under a, a melancholy, right? We're, we're in this, uh, I don't know. What will happen? It will worry us. Because we'll say, oh, maybe I'm, I'm losing my faith. Maybe I'm, I'm low in faith. Maybe I've, I've depleted my, oh. And we start to look to ourselves for the relief. We don't run to God. We say, oh, I've got to just pray more, exercise more faith, build up more faith, go to another conference where I can get some more faith. And we think it's up to us. I've got to listen to that song. I, someone told me about that song. That song will help me to build faith. And we think it's us. Us putting our faith in place of what Jesus has done. You see, the subtle differences here that faith is the means. If faith is the channel by which we receive salvation. Faith is not the cause for our salvation. Jesus is the cause. Jesus is the source. Jesus is the one. We simply receive what he has done by faith. So, when we do this, when we cut away all of our false assurances, our self-assurances, our own sort of reliance on faith, that also helps us not to be boastful, not to be proud. Because in Romans chapter 3, verse 27, Paul says, the gospel leaves no basis for boasting. If we think it's up to us and our good works, we'll boast. If we think it's up to our faith, how strong we are in the faith, we'll boast. But when we say it's all up to the Lord, we, we can say just as Paul does in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 13, let him who boasts, boasts only in the Lord. Any other boasting creates human division. It creates a division, a split between people. Because if we boast about social status or achievement, it leads to prejudice, condescension, hostility. If we boast about our moral attainments, our achievements, we will overlook our sins and our selfishness. And when we boast about what we are doing, it'll make us particularly sensitive, touchy, if anybody criticizes what we do. If anybody criticizes what we say, if anybody criticizes our religious practice, our keeping of the law, we will be extremely offended. Because why? Our moral purity is our strength. Our moral standard is what we're holding to. And we become hypersensitive. We're no longer able to hear the Holy Spirit. We're hearing only the offense caused because of our own thinking. When anything we boast about is threatened, our fundamental identity and security is threatened. Instead, here's where we are as we listen to all these things from Romans chapter 3. We have to respond to what we understand by receiving the righteousness of God by faith. 
We have to respond to what we are hearing and saying, Oh Lord God, all of you, none of me. All of your righteousness, none of my self-righteousness. All of your goodness, none of my good works. All of your provision, not my action. And I receive by faith. I receive by faith what I cannot see with my eyes, but I can experience in my life. I receive what you have done for me. And so, you know, when we think about this and we talk about point of application in this way, or pardon me, a point of response in this way, we get to a point of application and we say, Lord, we have to apply what we have learned by remaining in right legal standing before God. I thank you for your righteousness that puts me in right legal standing. I am no longer convicted of this sin. I am no longer deemed or judged guilty. I have been set free. But now help me to remain in that right legal standing with you. And how does that happen? We do that by continuously, continually reapplying the gospel to ourselves. I said at the beginning of the series that Romans is all about the gospel. And Romans is all about how we live out the gospel. And so when we learn these truths, when we understand these truths, when we know that the righteousness of God is what allows us to stand in this freedom of God, we apply that truth to our life every day. We have to remind ourselves every day, Jesus died for my sins. It's not according to my good works. I receive the righteousness of God. I'm putting off all those filthy garments of sin. And I'm clothing myself. I'm putting on the robes of righteousness that the Lord has given me. Oh, we remind ourselves daily. We come to him and we say, oh Lord God, by allowing this gospel of righteousness, this gospel of the kingdom, this gospel, this good news of what Jesus has done to renew my mind. Oh, I'm deeply satisfied. I am deeply content in life because of what the Lord has done for me. I don't lack for any good thing. I am deeply satisfied. Oh, I see it. I see the goodness of God. I, ex I see that God accepts me because Jesus paid for all my sins. What a joy. What a privilege. You feeling down? You feel discouraged in some way? Things not going the way that you were expecting? Answers to prayer seem to be just delayed. There's grief, there's heartache, there's loss. All sorts of things going on. I want to encourage you. Every single day, preach the gospel to yourself. Tell yourself, maybe out loud, Jesus died for me. He shed his blood for me. He gave his life for me. He paid the price for me. Oh, I, I, I have been set right in Christ Jesus. Tell yourself, reapply the gospel to yourself every single day. Because you see, the gospel, it grounds us. It's what the solid rock is that we can stand on. It's the foundation that we can build on. It grounds us so that then, when criticism or bad news or all sorts of negative things can happen, we can handle it. Not because we've got it all under control, 
but because we're standing on the rock. When the winds blow and the rains fall and the, the hurricane comes like we were singing, we stand. We stand. The bad news and failure no longer threaten our confidence in the relationship we have with God. We say, oh, I'm so sure of this. I know whose I am and who I belong to. I know who is mine, Jesus. I know I'm so confident of this. I'm assured in this. And because of that, oh, the more we see our faults and our failures, the more amazing and precious God's love appears. You see, if you think you're good, then you don't appreciate God's love for you. But when you think you're bad, you say, oh, wow, God still loves me. God still cares for me. God still shed his blood for me. When the more of our hearts are revealed and our faults and failures are revealed, the more amazing and precious God's love is and the more loved we experience. We experience in much greater way the love that he has for us. Otherwise, we're, we're not paying attention to it. And we say, oh God, thank you. Thank you for loving me. You know, and as the gospel transforms us, we become a more courageous people. We're not afraid of death. We're not afraid of the future. We're not afraid of other people. We come to know God for who he is. And we come to know that God is for us. He's not against us. He's for us. What is it in your life that you need? What is this next season that you're going into? What do you need help with? Are you saying, oh, I don't know what to do. I don't know where to go. I don't know who to speak to. I don't know how this will happen. I don't know what door will open. Guess what? God is for you. God is for you. He knows the plans he has for you. And that's why we're going to get to this verse in just a few more weeks. But in Romans chapter 8, verse 32, it says this, He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? You think you're lacking in something? The Lord has already given you Jesus. How could he not give you something else? He's given you the most precious thing. You need a little money. You need a job. You need something else. How could he not give you all of those things? when you recognize that he has done so much. That's the beauty of the gospel. That's the power of the gospel. That's the, that's the gospel we need to keep speaking to one another and to each other all the time so that when we place our worst fears into his hands and leave them there, we face difficulty and danger by saying, oh, my God is for me. My God is for me. My God is for me. He holds the future in his hands. Oh, I just have to trust him. A daily reapplication of the gospel. A daily receiving of Christ's atonement. A daily exercise of faith. Don't go into autopilot with your Christian life. Don't say, yeah, I was saved 15 years ago, 10 years ago, 15 days ago, 15, you know, I, I was saved some time ago. And I'm just, you know, going on. Every day, reaffirm what the Lord has done for you. Reaffirm the righteousness of God. 
reaffirm His goodness in your life. This morning, I want to challenge you. I want to encourage you that you would, when you leave from here even and throughout this week, keep saying, Oh, Lord God, I want to apply. I want to remain in right legal standing with you because every single day I'm receiving your righteousness. I'm receiving your gift. I'm so grateful to you. I praise you. I worship you. Then, you know, our, our call to worship and our time of worship, our prayer meetings, our activities, our interactions with one another, oh, these, these will just be things that we look forward to, that are joyful, that are encouraging. Why? Because we have received so much from the Lord and it just starts to overflow from us. It blesses the other person. It encourages. It builds us up. And we say, thank you, God. That's the church that we want to be. That's the body of Christ that we need to be. That's the example that we need to set for the world. And we can point them to Jesus too. We're not saying to them, be saved so that you can join my church. We're saying, come to Jesus. Oh, come to Jesus. He will put you in right legal standing. He will bring you to himself. Heavenly Father, we thank you. We thank you for your righteousness. We thank you, Lord, that a righteousness apart from the law has been given to us through the atoning sacrifice of Jesus Christ. And we receive it by faith. Well, this morning, Lord, we just take a few minutes and we, we come to you, we look to you and we say, Jesus, thank you. Thank you for saving me. Thank you for cleansing me. Thank you for redeeming me. Thank you for setting me free. Thank you for justifying me. Thank you for continuing to cleanse me. Thank you that I can keep coming to you when I sin and keep asking for forgiveness and you continue to forgive and there's nothing that I need to regret about that. I don't feel bad about coming back to you because it's not up to me. It's not up to my good works. Oh, I'm depending on your grace. I'm depending on your mercy. I'm depending on your loving kindness. Thank you that your word says that they are new to me every day. And so every day I speak the word of God. I proclaim the gospel of God. I reapply the gospel oh, to myself. And I say, thank you, Lord, for your righteousness. Lord, throughout this week, throughout this week, throughout this month, throughout our days. Lord, when we are struggling, when we are hurting, Lord, when we are in pain, help us to speak the gospel to each other and to ourselves. Let us encourage each other in the Lord by reminding Reminding us, reminding ourselves of what you have done. What you have done on the cross for our sake. Thank you, Lord Jesus. Thank you, Lord Jesus. Hallelujah. Thank you, Lord Jesus. 
Come and cleanse us anew this morning, Lord. Let us return to our first love. Let us experience you as our only love, our highest love, our everything. Thank you, Jesus. Oh, we come to you. Lord, help us to live out the gospel this week in every interaction, in every thought, in every word. Help us to let Christ live out through us. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.